Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Proverbs chapter 22, where Paul was reading earlier. We're looking at just one verse this morning. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's our text this morning. I really can't imagine a more difficult time to raise your children in the history of our nation than these times that uh, we are currently living in. It's just tough because of our culture. My mom and dad had a simple prayer after they met Christ, and their, their prayer, bottom line, was that um, all of their kids would come to know Jesus. That was, that was their prayer. I'm sure they had other prayers besides that, but bottom line prayer. And um, the Lord answered that prayer. Uh, everybody uh, in the Doville family, except for one of my brothers, uh, has accepted the Lord and um, are involved in ministry in one way or another, some in an unusual way. So if you saw the guys that were totally buffed out in black T-shirts, that's my little brother's Bible study group up in the Twin Cities. <laughs> so he has his own um, ministry, as uh, does my other brother, who's involved with jail ministry. And... Um, uh, my sister's out in, in Virginia. I'm sort of a product of the baby boomers. I grew, grew up in the 50s and 60s. They call that the baby boomer generation. And it's simply light years away from the generation that we're living in now. They actually have a name for kids in this generation. They're called millennials. So if you were born from 2000 on upward, you're considered not a generation X or a baby boomer, but you're called a millennial. Um, last week, we had uh, the Curtis Bauer family with us. Uh, him and his wife have nine kids. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't help but think that they reminded me of a family that grew up in the 60s. They were tight. They did everything together. They functioned as, as one unit. And uh, they're sort of an oddity of... of um, a family today that we're so closely knit together. This morning I'd like to look at this message sort of in two parts. Part one will be as Christians um, raising up our children in the ways of the Lord. That'll be number one. Number two is actually how our Heavenly Father raises his children, which would be you and I. And we'll look at the similarities between the growth process, and I'm going to start right at um, the time when a person is, is actually born into this world. What a strange thing, floating in this primal sea for nine months, all you know is faint voices, and, and um, all of a sudden one day you explode into this world of color, light, and sound, and everything's different, and you're born. And uh, there's usually a lot of rejoicing. <clears throat> My sister called me this week, asked to be put on the prayer chain, because uh, her daughter Kristen um, gave birth. And so the first thing that you know you do is uh, there's that instinct uh, in nature, but also you know, with babies that you suckle them. The very first act is giving that baby to the mother, and that child immediately begins to breastfeed on her mother's milk. And that's the very first thing that happens after a child is born. 
the parallel um, for somebody who comes to the Lord. A lot, a lot, quite a few people came to Christ last weekend. And um, they may have been 20, 30, 40, 50 physically. But spiritually speaking, they were just born again. And they were just one day old or one minute old. So 1 Peter 2.2 2 gives us the same instructions. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And some moms breastfeed for over a year, sometimes two. And uh, they're, they're just reared and they grow up on uh, their mother's milk. And as baby Christians, that's the most important thing I could tell you is get, <laughs> get into the Bible and actually desire it so that you can grow what we call get rooted and grounded. It doesn't just happen. Faith comes by hearing, right? And hearing comes by the word of God. We have clear instructions from the word of God how to deal with baby Christians. And then, uh, of course, the next step is um, after they've been on their mother's milk for a while, they, they begin to try to talk. One of the guys in Men's Prayer, I can't remember who it was, was talking about um, uh, the child at that age where he hears and he understands, but he's struggling with trying to say anything and he can't get anything quite out yet. And uh, it's just a process. You know, they go through the goo-goo, gaga type stuff. And then uh, in dealing with babies, of course, it's getting up in the middle of the night and feeding them. It's changing their diapers. It's cleaning up their messes. And basically, they have to be cared for. They have to be tended. With that, I want you to turn to John chapter 21, the New Testament. Pick it up in verse 15. Of course, this is... The Lord's one-on-one with Simon Peter after Peter had denied the Lord three times. Jesus is going to ask him three times if he really loves him. So in verse 15, it says, So when you, they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, Do you love me more than these? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he said to them, If you love me, Then I want you to feed my lambs. He had just spent the last three years, day and night, walking with Jesus. And the Lord says, everything that I have taught you, I want you to pass it on to them. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. Then everything that I've taught you, I want you to feed my lambs. So now we've gotten past the milk stage and uh, baby Christians have a lot of questions. Uh, they're on the milk of the word. They can make a lot of messes. I certainly did as a baby Christian. A lot of zeal, no knowledge. And um, uh, the Lord is telling peop- uh, John, uh, Peter here to um, feed my lambs. And that was his job, to take them under his wing and disciple them. Then he says in verse 16, a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he said, tend my sheep. Well, feeding sheep and tending sheep are two different things. And so now we're getting into, as a baby Christian, when they make a mess or they have have something that needs to be cleaned up or they need to be cared for, then do it. And the whole process of teaching them, if somebody asks you to go a mile with them, what does the Lord say? Go to. 
If somebody steals your coat, give them your cloak also. And you'll be, you'll be showing something that is so different from, from the real nature and character of a human being, they'll know something is different about you, actually caring for them. And so the second time, it's not feeding, but it's tending. And then the third time, in verse 17, he said to them the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? This time Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, uh, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. And there's a whole Greek study that we could get into here, but it would take up the rest of my time to, to uh, tear it apart and put it back together. I'm just going to focus on what he says the third time. He says, yes, you know, you know everything, Lord. And Jesus said, that I want you to feed my sheep. There's nothing more important uh, in the Christian life in raising up a child than to get them at an early age to love the Bible. Turn to me to Deuteronomy, Old Testament, chapter six. Picking it up in verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. You will teach them diligently to your children, and you will talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be a frontlet between your eyes. You will you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. On my sidewalk, when we poured the concrete on it, I put uh, Joshua twenty four fifteen or fifteen twenty four. I always get them mixed around. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And write, put it right down, right there. So when people come to the door, they can they they they'll know immediately where we're at. But this um, encouragement in Deuteronomy, tells the importance of teaching it to your children when they wake up and when they lay down. Growing up in the Doval household, even though at this stage we were going through the motions, but we didn't know the Lord, but um, every night mom would tuck us in and um, we would pray the Lord's Prayer and then at the end of it, and we would say, and God bless mommy and daddy and Uncle Johnny and and write down the list. And um, they were doing their best at that time to, uh, to do that, even though none of us in the family knew the Lord. And I'll get into that a little bit more later. Well, then comes your first steps when you begin to walk. Every parent here will tell you the time and the place that, that your little boy or little girl took his first step. It was a big deal. He's learning to walk on his own. Well, Comparing it to the Christian life, uh, it's the same thing that uh, the Apostle Paul, in writing to Ephesians, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. There's a whole new way of walking, a whole new way of talking that we learn in the Lord. Ephesians 5.8, For you were once in darkness, but now you are in the Lord's, so walk as children of light. Don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. 
Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we're told to add to our faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God, but now we're supposed to add to it and actually begin to develop. Colossians 2.6, as therefore you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And so it's like walking and talking with Jesus. It's just a part. You know, when the Bible says that we're to pray without ceasing, well, how in the world do you do that? Well, thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. If your mind is always on the Lord, there's that peace that comes, and you can be acknowledging him as you're just walking along, doing everyday, uh, everyday things in life. The next step, after you've learned how to walk, taking your first couple of baby steps, well, then you're off to school, and you go to elementary school, and you learn your ABCs, Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. This was interesting to me this morning when I was going through this because I counted them up. When you go to elementary school, you learn your ABCs so that you can learn to read and write. And, um, you know, there's reading, writing, arithmetic, science, English, social studies. I counted six of them. That's usually what they'll rattle off. And one of the reasons you go to elementary school And I found it interesting, in Hebrews chapter 6, Paul is writing to the Hebrews. Now, the background of this is they've been walking with the Lord for a while, but they're still in their ABCs when they should be farther on into more of a college level, and they're not. So this is sort of an admonishment in the first couple verses here, but notice again the parallel for the spiritual life. Paul says... Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance. There's number one, and you turn from, and then of dead works, and two, having faith towards the Lord, the first two steps. When a person is born again, you do a, you do a 180. You're going one way, and now you, you go the other way. So you turn from dead works, and you now learn this walk by faith, and then it says, of faith towards God, and now the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And what I thought was interesting is there's six here, too. Six elementary principles. And when you go to a a school growing up as a kid, there's six elementary subjects. They're all different from the other. And here we have six things that every Christian should have a slam dunk understanding of what are the foundational doctrines of our faith. Number one, you have to repent. That has to take place. There needs to be a turning away from and a turning to by faith towards God. One and two. What's the first thing you do after you come to Christ? Well, believe and be baptized. And so there's a doctrine that's called baptism. Romans chapter six, the first six verses, compares it to uh, dying to the old life. When you're baptized, you're, you're publicly saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I was reading my 
wisdom for today, this morning. And it's the verse that talked about being a fool for Christ. Chuck's point was everybody, somebody's fool. And um, um, he says, I, if people call me a fool for being a Christian, then so be it. I'll be a fool for Christ. Everybody, somebody's fool, as the old song goes. And the doctrine of baptism, we need to be able to articulate and explain why a grown person would be dipped in water, and we pray for them, and why do we do that? And the simple answer is, is because it's part of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a doctrine. And then the laying on of hands. This is the second baptism. And uh, uh, it's uh, a teaching, one of the foundations of the faith, um, in Acts chapter 8, when um, the, uh, Philip had this uh, revival taking place, um, there was many people that were getting saved and baptized, but they had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they called down to Jerusalem for Peter and John to come on up. And when he came, he laid hands on them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't put God in a box in this one. Some people get baptized in the Holy Spirit um, the the day that they're saved. Uh, I was a Christian for two years before I was baptized in water, but I got it at the same time. I was baptized in water and the Holy Spirit at the same time. Some people, uh, there's maybe years that go between the two, but you need to understand that the laying out of hands is a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I believe is impossible, it's impossible to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit or Christ in you. In him, I can do all things. Without him, I can do nothing. You know, you can, you can find out the hard way. Try to live the Christian life without, without the empower of Jesus being inside you. With me, you can do anything. Without me, you can do nothing. Then, it gets into the resurrection of the dead. The whole reason, the hope that we have for us uh, is that there is going to be the rapture of the church, um, the resurrection of the dead comes in two forms, of the just and the unjust. There are two different judgments. There's a judgment seat of Christ, which is called the Bema seat judgment. It has nothing to do with your sins. It has everything to do with your rewards. That's what the Olympics are all about. They get a silver or gold or a bronze. Well, the Bema seat is where your deeds, the things that you've done in your life in the name of Jesus are all accounted for. And some people will have absolutely zilch. And 1 Corinthians 3 says there will be some that have lived their whole life just for themselves, and it says they have no reward. It says, but their soul is saved. And that tells me that works has nothing to do with your salvation but it has everything to do with your rewards. My salvation is God's free gift to me. I don't deserve it. Uh, I haven't earned it, and it's simply God's grace. Then there's a resurrection of the dead, and then number six is eternal judgment. Revelation 20 clearly talks about the dead stood before the great white throne, and the books, plural, were opened. All the deeds that that person ever did is written down and recorded. And it says, everyone whose name was not written in the book of life 
was cast into the lake of fire. Now, this is important today, especially when we got teachers like Rob Bell out there and other writers of um, Love Wins, uh, Universalism, uh, basically teaching that all people are going to eventually make it to heaven. God's love is so great he could never send anybody to hell. Well, I'll tell you, gang, my ABCs tell me otherwise. And these are the foundations of the faith. These are the elementary principles that you've got to have down in order to be able to teach them to your children or anyone else, for that matter. Good time for an amen. Dave Hawking was here last week, and if you think I'm going to let you get away with that amen, you're wrong. Try it again. That's better. David says a lot more than I do. You know he does. Okay, then there's, then there's a stage, both physically and spiritually, that's called adolescence, where adolescence is, you know, spiritually speaking, I think everybody goes through it. I've met so many young bucks right out of Bible college, running into them. They pretty much know everything, and they think you know nothing. Well, adolescence is when, physically, is when you know everything, and mom and dad know absolutely nothing, without exception. And in the Deauville family, before we were born again, I was raised in a mainline Protestant church, Sunday school, a church every Sunday, confirmation. In order to have confirmation, you have to take a test. And um, I passed my confirmation test because I sat next to Kathy Miller, who had all the answers. And I cheated. (laughs) Cheated on confirmation. That's a good one. Then I was able to have my first communion. None of us knew the Lord. Not one of us. But we were diligent in going. Now, I didn't have to go at at a certain age. Um, I grew up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And the Johnny Carson show was on and says there's two places to be on St. Patrick's Day. Dublin, Ireland and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And um, so when I got to be 16, um, I decided I'm not going to go any to church anymore, but the fact of the matter was I was in no shape to go to church on Saturday, Sunday morning because of Saturday night. I had a fake ID at the age of 16 and was able to go in Oshkosh. We, I don't know what they call it anywhere else. We just called it bar hopping. And we started early. We ended late and um, because the requirement for going to church was no longer a mandatory thing, I simply didn't. I simply couldn't, let's put it that way. So my church days were over um, between 16 and and 18. I was a prodigal son. I came and went as I pleased, still living under mom and dad's house. And it was just sort of the culture at the time. And um, I got away with it. And it was the wrong model set. That was a Doville model. I'm going to compare it to Chuck and Kay in their model. Because Chuck and Kay had uh, the same amount of kids, and, uh, but Chuck had ground rules. They were born again, and they were in ministry. And this was Chuck's rule. As long as you live under this roof, you will be in church. 
you will have family devotions with us. And if you don't like it, then you don't have to live here anymore. Those were the simple rules. In other words, they were free to go if they wanted to. I won't tell you which one of the sons it is, but Chuck's talked openly about it at pastor's conference. One of his kids left 17 times. He ran away from home 17 times. He says, I'm not going to do that. See you later. But he'd always come home. And um, he played prodigal. I want to stop a moment and just say, I know that some of you are dealing with prodigal sons or daughters right now. You're walking with the Lord. They're not. And you're praying for them. Oh, they were brought up in the church. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. And yet of, uh, of uh, their own free will, they're choosing not to. And I know you're praying for them now. I want to give you a little hope about our scripture this morning. Let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Let's look at the story of the prodigal son that I certainly can identify with. Luke 15, picking it up in verse 11. We'll read the whole thing and I'll come back and comment on it. Now a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods which the the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Nobody cared about him. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and here I am perishing with hunger? He had come to the end of himself. Nobody cared for him. But when he hit bottom, because he was trained up in the ways of the Lord by his father, he knew where he could go home and he would be taken care of. Somebody would at least feed him. So he came to the end of himself. Some people, when they hit bottom and end up in the pig pen, if they have not been trained up in the ways of the Lord, they have no hope. This guy's got hope. But imagine not being trained and taught. Um, A lot of people commit suicide at this point because they see no reason for going on. But this young man, he was smart enough when he was in the pig pen that he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to to eat and, and even to spare and I perish with hunger I'm going to rise and I'm going to go to my father and I'll say to him father I have sinned against heaven and before you I want you to notice not only his father but this is why I tell you he was raised and trained in the ways of the Lord and my heavenly father you see this guy knew about a heavenly father and I'll no longer I'm no longer worthy to be called your son now this is true repentance when you see your unworthiness and the necessity to go back to your home with the Lord. And make me like one of my 
hired servants. So he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Why did his father see him? Because I believe every day that father went out and he looked down that road, hoping and praying, just like some of you are hoping and praying that someday he'll walk through the door and there'll be that reconciliation between a father and a son. So he was looking for him, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, Bring the breastrobe, put it, put it on him. Put on a ring on his hand, put sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son that was dead, or backslidden, and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found, and they began to make merry. So here, this young man came to his senses because he knew he could go home, and he knew he would be loved on and welcomed there. Then there's the older brother. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and, and so he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on here? What's, what's the meaning of all this? And he said, well, it's your brother. He's come home, and because he, he has been received safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Instead of saying, praise the Lord, he became angry. It would, not, it would not go in. And so his father had to come out. Here he's out pouting because his party's being thrown for his uh, younger brother. And the father came out and he pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. And I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours come home who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, so he really was playing fast and loose, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. I, this is a personal story in my own life in the Jesus movement because there were guys on Chuck's board when uh, the, the hippies began to invade Calvary Chapel and just built a new sanctuary and put in new carpet. And here's where the older brothers came in. This was their mentality. Look at these dirty hippies. They don't have any shoes on. And um, they're going to mess up our new carpet. And Chuck's answer to that was, rip out the carpet. <laughs> That'll take care of that problem. And it put these older brothers. Here, here are these people that had the privilege of sitting under Pastor Chuck week in and week out. And um, they were having a problem with the people of, let's say, questionable character getting saved and sitting among them. The same attitude. They had this attitude. And Chuck says, no, 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 no. We're throwing a party. And it was because he had the right attitude. Um, you know, the thousands of people that got saved in my generation that were so totally lost and hopelessly hooked on drugs and, 
every ungodly imaginable thing you can think of. Uh, Chuck's heart, father's heart went out to him, along with Kay. And uh, so we're in this story. Um, you can be the prodigal who's returning. Um, hopefully the loving father who's opened arms and glad. Or you can be um, the older brother who here who needs to um, say, hey, look, you, you get to listen to, to Chuck teach every Sunday. Just be glad. I'm here. Not going anywhere. And so we have um, the story of, of the prodigal. Um, one more step that I want to take you through. And that is there's a balance to all this loving on when he came back home. When the woman was caught in the act of adultery, the Lord stood in her corner. And those who wanted her stoned, he got rid of them one at a time. And then he turned to this woman who had gotten saved during the whole process, called him Lord. And um, he says, go and sin no more. And that lifestyle had to change. And um, I believe she did. And... um, Yet, the Bible teaches in the book of Proverbs and in the book of Hebrews that the love is one part of it, but because we are human beings who sin, discipline is a necessary requirement in training up a child in the ways of the Lord, just as it is for the believer. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's turn there. Hebrews 12 this one we got to get down because there's times that the Lord's going to take you to the woodshed. And you can have one or two reactions when that happens. In Hebrews 12, as we as believers, let's pick it up in verse 5. Paul says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord. And I don't want you to be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastising, in other words, when you're reproved, Um, Do you take it to heart? Proverbs says a wise man will receive instruction. If you endure the chastising when you're being disciplined, well, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chastise? The idea here is every father's job. His role is a disciplinarian in the family. Certainly was with ours, and I'll get into that in just a little bit. But it's just part of the Christian life being disciplined. Now, verse 8, if you are without chastising, of which you have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and you're not sons at all. In other words, if, if, if you're messing around with sin and you're not being convicted and chastised by, by the Lord, then you're not even born again. You're, you're illegitimate. You're not sons at all. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. 
sort of a godly fear and reverence for that area of uh, dad's life. Shall we much not more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastise as it seemed, excuse me, best for them. But he does it for our profit so that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastising or correcting seems to be joyful for the present, uh, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness and those, notice, who have been trained by it. Raise up a child, train up a child in the ways of the Lord. Part of the process is understanding that that cute little baby gaga gaga goo 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 goo's first words are going to be no, and is born a little rebel. And Proverbs twenty two fifteen says, "Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it from them." Children need to be taught how to tell the truth. They don't have to tell how. Were you in the cookie jar? Uh uh-uh. uh. And you got chocolate chips hanging all over your face, you know. And you're totally lying. And so you're disciplined. You get grounded. Um, Whatever form of discipline you apply is, uh, that's for the parents to talk out between a husband and a wife. I know how it worked in my family growing up. My mother's favorite choice of weapons for discipline was a fly swatter and a wooden spoon. And all she had to do is make that move towards the refrigerator where the flesh water was, and we knew it was coming. If it was serious, and uh, she ever had to use the words, wait till your father gets home, then I'm in really big trouble. I remember one time in my adolescence years where I realized I was taller than my mother. And I went, huh, I'm bigger than she is. And she told me to do something. I said, I don't have to do that anymore. I'm taller than you are. And she let it go. I was surprised she let it go. And she didn't tell me, wait till your father gets home. But she did tell my father when he got home. Well, he gave me a lesson that day that I I remember to this day. And in no uncertain terms, he let me know, if I ever spoke to my mother that way again, I would no longer be alive. (laughs) Something like that, along those terms. But um, he was being trained up in that respect is there. The Bible teaches that our earthly fathers disciplined us. And I'll tell you, if you're a parent living in these times, um, I know they can threaten you with calling social services. I know all that. Uh, You've got to make some decisions. And um, your form of discipline, talk it out between your husband and wife, but know this, if you don't do it, you're going you're gonna to raise a kid who's out of control and have no respect for authority. Um, I did respect my dad, and I was afraid. I loved my dad dearly, and I had great respect for him. Everybody liked my dad, but he, he, you did not talk back to mom, and that, that never happened again. But every adolescent tries it, I think, at one time or another. So, matter of priorities. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he, he will not depart from it. Let me just give you some suggestions as we consider this verse this morning. And it's more, you know, in ministry, it's not so much what's taught 
but it's what's caught. And in watching people in the Calvary Chapel ministry, how they conducted themselves. One of our favorite sayings is always err on the side of grace. And make sure you have all your facts down before you talk about something, those sort of things. And uh, realize it's not what you say, but it's what you do because their kids are watching you. They live with you. So if they see you getting up every morning and you're doing your devotions, and um, it's just the first thing you do with your cup of coffee in the morning, they're watching that. They're also watching if you don't. Um, Reading your Bible or wisdom for today. The other thing is that um, your fellowship with other Christians is a priority in your life. Never miss church. Even if you're um, camping or whatever, um, there's a church in the area where you can still uh, get uh, fellowship and get uh, fed. Of course, unless you're sick or something like that. Uh, I commend the men who have one day off, and it's usually Saturday, and here they are yet at men's prayer, praying for their their unsaved family. Almost without exception, when we go around, it's always a personal prayer request and then somebody in the family who's not saved. For my unsaved wife, for my unsaved son, for my unsaved daughter, it's always the same. We're to continue in that, especially for the prodigals. Kids see mom and dad. Um, They see that mom loves dad and dad loves mom. Dad used to do this on purpose to embarrass us. When he would came would come home from work, we're all around the table. He would do one of these dips with mom. And he did it just to embarrass us. And then he'd lay one on her. I'm talking about a kiss now. <laughs> and uh, we go, ooh, you know. And, but that was out exception. Coming home, that's what mom got when, she, and when uh, she walked in the door. And if she didn't get it, I think she was, uh, would have been disappointed. Uh, Sunday worship is more important than the Packer games. Ooh, what a stinger. What a stinger that is. In the 60s, growing up, every store was closed. Every store was closed. And all the churches were full. Today, in 2015, everything is open. And unfortunately, parents are forced to choose between soccer on Sunday or church. That would have been unheard of in my generation. Soccer, school requirement on a Sunday, it's not possible. Everything's closed. They're running a marathon outside this morning. Train up a child in a way he shall go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Let me proceed it so that you don't think I'm, uh, I don't have some personal feelings about athletics and sports. I was... Uh, when I was out of high school, I moved to Aspen, Colorado, and my God was skiing, clear and simple. I lived to ski, and um, skiing was my God. And um, going back and forth, eventually ran in 1972 into these, these crazy Jesus people all, all the time. I was saved, but I wasn't rooted and grounded. I was a skier. <laughs> and they lived communally, and all they did was work all day and have Bible studies at night and then go street witnessing. And um, the Lord was calling me into this ministry. And I was just being honest. That meant if I did this, these guys don't go skiing on the weekends. They just don't do it. 
Now I had to give up the thing I loved most in order to do this. And I had to count the cost. I'm saying this because of what I'm going to say next. I did not ski from 1972 to 1978. As far as I was concerned, I didn't think I'd ever be able to ski again. Then we started the little white church, and I don't know, somebody had a a condo. Jerry Crash would know exactly the year I started skiing again. So thinking, I'll never ski again as long as I live. Um, Somebody uh, offered us a condo in Breckenridge, late 70s. And since then, I've been real busy the last couple years, but I have skied in every major ski hill in America. I made the list. I'd tell you what the list was, but it's too long. But every single one of them, many times. Whistler Blackcomb, uh, the vertical is 5,800 feet. So the Vale, Aspen, Breckeridge, you name it, I've skied it and done so. All that to say this, uh, put the Lord first, and you might think you'll never do it again. But then I thought, I like traveling too, and if I join these, I'll never travel again if I join Shiloh. I've been around the world countless times, and, and the very thing that I thought wouldn't happen, the Lord just turns around, and now he, he is a, a delight, and we'll be going to, to Israel for the 30th time or so um, uh, in November. All that to, to say this, because I wanted to precede it, because we're having a marathon. Every year we have, and they go right past here. And I asked Judy to look this up for me. I wanted to get the movie Chariots of Fire. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, um, it takes place during the 20s, and um, the lead uh, character is Eric Little. This is the Olympics we're talking here. And um, he was a devout Christian, born to Scottish missionaries in China, and his job, uh, his gift was he was fast. He was very fast. But his heat, the, the preceding heat that would qualify him for the finals was on, on a Sunday. It was on the Lord's Day. And uh, he had to make a decision. Would he run the heat or would he honor the Lord's Day? How many have seen the movie? Just cu- curious. Uh, not even half. It's an, it's an older movie. He, he didn't run his heat. He competed in the Olympics, but he did not compete in that particular race. And I was curious as I'm coming here this morning, and I'm thinking, I wonder, because this was already part of my notes, I was wondering if there's any Eric Littles that are out there this morning. They're saying, Fox City's Marathon annual event, but, you know, they got it on Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. So, as for me and my house, that comes first, and that comes second. What I just said has to be modeled, because sports is such a big thing today. And I have a big problem with schools putting soccer on Sunday. And you as parents can say something about that. I can say it from the pulpit. But if you're going to train your child up in the ways he should go, it's really a matter of priorities. That's why I told you my ski story. I can't tell you how much I love downhill skiing. The reason I went out there was a guy named Jimmy Beeble. Uh, The 40th anniversary of Potter Magazine, which every skier has, he was on the front cover. And to this day, he's known as the best skier. I moved out there because of Jimmy. And uh, here he is on the front page. Now, he's got to do it his whole life, but as far as I know, he never got saved. Now, it's been 40 years later. Would I do it again? Absolutely. 
And that's all money in the bank now the last 40 years. But I could have been a ski bum for 40 years too. Who knows? But So don't think I'm being heartless against the guys that are out running the race this morning. Many of them don't know the Lord. But I'm just curious if there's any Eric Littles out there. Just one. I said, sorry, that's not my priority. And I got to walk the talk. So we're going to put church before sports when it comes to Sunday. Amen? Trade him for child and away he shall go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the teaching of your word this morning and the practical advice of just seeing everything from being born again and desiring the milk of your word to learning our elementary principles so we can read and write, but also understand biblical doctrine and be sound in it. Lord, in closing, we have prodigals in our life who have simply gotten caught up in the world and are living in a pig pen. And we pray for them this morning. And I know there's parents that are watching and waiting and praying. Lord, we agree with them this morning that whatever it takes to bring them back to you, Jesus, we pray by the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit that you will work conviction, bring that person to the point where he now knows he can come home and he'll be loved on and received. In Jesus' name, amen.